People sometimes say some pretty weird things, and maybe you've had that experience where you're you know, in the cubicle and someone in the cubicle next to you says something that's kind of odd, or you're at a party or a family function and you, you overhear someone say something that's kind of odd. I've had that happen before. But rather than share my personal experiences because it might involve, um, well, it might involve you, um, I just want to share some strange things that other people have overheard uh, colleagues and friends say. So one person overheard their friend asking the question, isn't Rome in Russia? That's a little odd that you wouldn't know that. Um, Another person on the phone, do you have any boneless pizza? Kind of weird. Then this statement, sometimes I think that people don't exist. Not really sure what you mean by that, but that's kind of weird. The next one, I'm guessing between two siblings. If I had a lightsaber, I would lightly saber you. Or how about this? I'm not nosy. I just know things. Sometimes people say some strange, some weird things, and we can laugh at them, chuckle about them, and find it to be mildly humorous. Other times, people say weird things that should cause us grave concern, especially when it comes to matters pertaining to truth. Even in the church, it's possible that at times we fall into false teaching or we, we hear something that's said to us and we just receive it as if it's factual. And we may even begin to believe it and repeat it to other people, but it's, it's weird. And so if you're, if you're alive and well, and you're interested in your faith, I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, at work or on television, or maybe even in church, some strange things about Christianity, some of the strange things, weird things that I've heard people say that are not humorous at all are things like, well, I have no problem with premarital sex. I don't think that's a big deal. Or I'm okay with partial birth abortion. I mean, I wouldn't advocate for it, but everybody has a right to make their own decision. Or Jesus isn't actually God, you know? Really? That's weird. Or I believe we evolved from monkeys Really? That's weird. Or we shouldn't judge another person's behavior, you know, live and let live, let people do whatever they want. These are things I've heard individuals say who claim to be Christian people. And they're not funny, and they should cause us great concern. Now, we could come up with, I'm sure, quite a long list of weird things that people believe. But I wanted to use these illustrations to get us started on a topic today that really we started several weeks ago when we started into 1 John. Um, 1 John is basic Christianity because what it essentially does is it establishes boundaries for us. And in a day and age where people often think, well, I can act however I want and still be a Christian or believe whatever I want and still be a Christian, John's like, no. There are certain kinds of conduct that are outside of the boundaries for biblical Christianity. And there are certain beliefs that are outside of the boundaries for biblical Christianity. In other words, you simply cannot live and believe whatever you want and still declare yourself 
to be a Christian. Now in the first chapter and then the first half of chapter two, John is primarily focusing on matters of conduct. So he calls good conduct light and he calls bad conduct darkness. And we're taught there that if you walk in the darkness, in other words, your life is characterized by immorality. You cannot say that you simultaneously walk in the light. So he's calling people out that have this notion. Well, I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want because Jesus died on the cross. I mean, now I can just commit whatever sin I want. Who cares? And don't challenge me on it. It's like, no, you're a fake. You're not a real Christian. And then in the second part of chapter two, we're going to look at verses 18 to 27 this morning. He focuses on essentially content or doctrinal issues. And what we're taught here, that if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, and we will unpack that a bit more for fuller meaning, but if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are in fact anti-Christ. You're not Christian, you're anti-Christ. So there are certain things you must believe to say I'm a Christian. And there are certain things you must do or not do in order to, to declare yourself to be a Christian. Said another way, Christianity is not like Play-Doh. Remember Play-Doh as kids, you take it, you can shape it into a giraffe, a, a monkey, your sister, whatever. Christianity is not like Play-Doh where you can just take it and kind of shape it and mold it into whatever is suitable to you. Christianity has boundaries attached to it. You cannot make it in whatever, into whatever image you want. So this raises the question, well, essentially, what is Christianity then? Well, at its most fundamental level, Christianity is Jesus. That's Christianity. Now, we might say we're part of Christianity, but really, we're not the definition of Christianity. I'm not the definition of Christianity. Bishops aren't the definition of Christianity. Papal creeds aren't the definition of Christianity. Denominations aren't the definition of Christianity. Books written by Christians aren't the definition of Christianity. Christianity at its heart is Jesus. And that involves Jesus' morals, Jesus' message, and Jesus' personhood. This is Christianity. So you cannot say, well, I'm a Christian and deny the morality of Jesus, or I'm a Christian, but I deny the message of Jesus, or I'm a Christian, but I deny the personhood of Jesus. No, you're not allowed to do that. Call yourself something else, but you cannot call yourself a Christian. So as we enter into the second part of chapter two, we're going to learn a little bit more about the content, especially the personhood of Jesus. Why is this important? Well, I can think of three reasons. The first is self-assessment. I want to make sure I got one crack at life, folks. And I want to make sure that I'm believing the right things. I don't want to fall victim to having a false view of who Jesus is. And I certainly don't want to fall victim to having a false view of what salvation is or what I'm supposed to do or not do. So it allows us to self-assess as we study books like this. Secondly, there's an apologetic value. So apologetics is essentially the art and science of defending your faith. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. And the word there is apologia. 
apologetics. So when you're defending the Christian message or the person of Christ against skeptics or people that may have twisted thinking, you need to understand, you know, what's in the box, what's outside of the box. And then third, it has implications for your sanctification. In other words, your growth and holiness. How can I say, well, I'm following Jesus. If I'm not actually following the biblical Jesus, I'm following some pseudo Jesus. So for my sanctification to move forward, I need to conform my mindset, my attitudes, my actions, my vocabulary to Jesus Christ. So I want to make sure I get the right Jesus. I'm not following someone who turns around, you know, at the, the last days of my life. And I discover I'm, I've been following Jesus all along. So this is why this is an important conversation for us to have. So let's get into it. Verse 18 and following helps us to differentiate between fake Christians and real Christians. So here's how it goes. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming. So that's singular. So now many antichrists have come. That's plural. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Notice the if introduces a conditional statement. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. They all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy one and you all meaning the plural, a reference to the whole church. Those that were previously addressed at the beginning of verse 18 as children, those that are part of the true family of God in the South, you'd say y'all and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is this message Intended for lost people or found people Christians or non-Christians. Well, verse 18 says children. That means this is intended for the people of God. This is intended for the church. This is a warning for God's family. The church gathered to pay attention to certain things that relate to the personhood of Jesus Christ and the timing within which this message is relevant is the last hour. So what's the last hour? The last hour is not literally one 60 minute period. The last hour refers to everything from the time of Jesus until the second coming of Christ. So far, it's been about 2,000 years. And for however long God has in his plan, before he comes back, that's the last hour. Why, Why is it called the last hour? Because Jesus does not have to do anything else before his second coming. He was born of a virgin in a manger. He lived among us a perfect life. He died in a Roman cross for our sin. He was resurrected from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the father. The table's been set. 
and we're just waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. So as we live our lives, then we need to live our lives with an imminent sense that Jesus could return like any time. Nothing else has to happen. Now, because it's been 2000 years, we might think, well, statistically, the chances of him coming back today are slim to none. And then we fall into laziness or disobedience or whatnot. But a biblical Christian needs to adopt this mindset. Jesus could come back before I take my next breath, before the sermon's done, before the end of this day, before the end of my life. So we need to be ready. We need to be focused. We need to make sure that we are the real deal. You know, we understand what readiness is like in other life circumstances. Let's say that special person finally contacts you and you agree to go on your first date. Are you going to forget it? No. Are you going to show up late? No. Are you going to dress like a slob? No. You're going to remember it because it's really important. This is the first date. Or you're looking for work and you find a job interview and you're called in at a certain time on a certain date. Are you going to just sleep in? No, you're going to be there. You're going to be there early. You're going to be dressed for it. You're going to be raring and ready to go for that interview, prepped up to the best of your ability. We all know what it's like to be ready. How much more important is it for us to be ready for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? So are you ready? Are you following him? Are you following the right Jesus? Is your life surrendered to Jesus? As we prepare ourselves for Jesus' second coming, John teaches us that Antichrist during this last hour, these last days, will come fast and furious. Now, where are they coming from? Like, where should I expect to see them? Where am I going to meet them? Well, this is what is somewhat disconcerting. Many of them will come out of the church. Many of them will come out of the people of God. It says here, they went out from us. Isn't it interesting that some of the people that are the most aggressive towards the biblical Jesus hate Jesus the most, like make Make it their occupation to attack the things of Christ often grew up in churches. They've read the Bible. They've hung around the people of God. Some of them have pastored churches. Some of them have been leaders in churches. Some of them have written Christian books. Some of them have held great evangelistic crusades. But over time, you realize they weren't really of us in the first place. And now they they're deceived and they're often violent toward the biblical Jesus. I can think of people in my short life that I served in ministry with, or I went to Bible college or seminary with that are antichrists that are opposed to the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus And at the time, some of them were cream of the crop people. So how do we process that? Well, notice what it says. For if, this is middle of verse 19. For if they had been of us, they would have 
continued with us. So by going out, in fact, look at the word there, it becomes plain that they weren't actually of us in the first place. You know, the church is an interesting thing because on one hand, it's the body of Christ. It's a spiritual community of people that have been regenerated by the Holy spirit, justified by the blood of Jesus Christ called to follow him. But at the same time, there's a, there's a, there's a social dimension to it. We meet in a place at a certain address and we enjoy friendships and relationships with one another. Now don't kid yourself. There are many that will come to the address. There are many that will participate in the life of local churches who've not actually been regenerated on the inside. Maybe they came because they were lonely. They were looking for friends or their mother brought them there since the time they were a child. They've never known anything else or they're looking for a spouse or whatever it might be. They're, they're part of this social enterprise called the church, but they're not necessarily part of the spiritual community that have been regenerated by the Holy spirit of God. If they had been, they wouldn't have gone out from us and defame the name of Jesus. But by going out, they eventually prove that they were not of us in the first place. This adds to a doctrine that we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. How do I know I'm saved? Correct belief, a changed life and perseverance. The true believer will stick it out through thick and thin through the challenges and difficulties of life because they've been regenerated by God once and for all. I think I'm often curious, what is it that is likely to draw someone initially away from the biblical Jesus? And in chapter two, verse 15, we're told what draws people away. It says they love the world. So I think we'd be wise to kind of look for signs of that in our own life. They, they love the world. What does it mean to love the world? Well, I love the thrills the world offers. I, I have a love for the views the world presents. I have a curiosity about the conclusions that the world draws on life issues. I like the lifestyle. The belief system is intellectually stimulating to me. Now, there's more of that that's going to come in the book of John, but we need to be so careful that we don't love the world. Of course, we need to love people in the world in order that we might reach them with the gospel. But do a little assessment in your own life daily, minimally weekly. Just ask yourself, what is my attitude toward the world? Do I love it? Am I living for it? This is something that kind of revs me up. These are symptoms of someone that may be falling away from the biblical Jesus. Now, by contrast to Antichrist, it says here that the Holy One will lead you into truth. Who's the you? Well, the text is clear on who the you is. The you is you all. You know, in English, we have um, some anomalies. So we have our personal pronouns. If you have a singular personal pronouns, you have um, a first person, which is I. 
And then um, you have the second person, which is you. And then you have the third person, which is he, she, or it. And then we have plural. So if we're going to pluralize I, we use we. So it's a totally different word. And in the third person, if we're going to pluralize a he or a she or an it, we use the word they. But for some weird reason, we just use the same word for the second person personal pronouns. So you can be singular or you can be plural. So I can say you or you. And it can kind of be confusing. This is why the Southerners have it right. They say you, y'all. And this is stressed in this text. This is not speaking about you as individuals, but this is speaking about you all, which is buttressed by the initial address, children. It's a collective expression that refers to the whole church. And what we're being taught here is that the whole church, the gathered church, is in fact illuminated to truth by the Holy Spirit. And the word that's being used here to try to describe the work of the spirit in the life of the church is anointing. Now we used to think about that in reference to oil under the old covenant. When Saul was anointed king, they poured oil on him. When David was anointed king, they poured oil on him. It was like a certain ordinance, a sacred ordinance to symbolize the spirit coming upon someone. But here we're anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. Right way I'm thinking about the Pentecost event, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Now, the reason why I'm stressing that the corporate nature of the church's collective anointing is because that is very different than how false teachers operate. False teachers, you'll notice, especially early on, are alone in their views. They're alone in their views. They're by themselves. They're anomalies. They go to the scriptures and they try to find things that no one's found before. And who justifies the truthfulness of those statements? Well, I I just know it. Yeah, but the rest of the church doesn't agree. People have challenged you on it. Your views are, no, but I know it. Because it's me, myself, and I. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. So I figured it out. And you don't have the truth, y'all. But I got the truth going down. Now, over time, false teachers often will, you know, form little groups of people. But one of the marks of false teaching is it doesn't start as mass movements. It starts with one person who's alone in their views. And instead of honoring the fact that there's a sense in which God's spirit works collectively among his people to make sure that we're in the truth, we're challenged, we're called out, we're caused to give a defense for our beliefs. We're held accountable for our beliefs. False teachers are often marked by like this lone ranger mindset, but collectively y'all truth is better than you truth. It's plural. We hold each other accountable to it. And in this text, we're taught that y'all can trust the Holy spirit together to lead us into truth. Whereas a false teacher can't do that because he's all by him or herself, but God is working collectively among his people to ensure that we're not sliding into Error. This is why, again, we hold each other accountable. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. 
for what we teach. So let's think a little bit more about how fakes actually operate. How do fakers work? We want to make sure we're not buying into their false message. 22 and 23 state, who is the liar? That word's a little harsh, but it's in the Bible. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Someone denies that Jesus is the Christ. What does the Bible call that person? A liar. Pretty straightforward. No one who denies the son has the father. So if you deny the fact that Jesus is the Christ, or if you deny that Jesus is the son, no, you're a liar. You can't claim to have a relationship with the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. Some religions have this notion of a father God, but they deny the necessity of Jesus Christ. That's a lie. So what we have here is two Christological heresies. Two heresies that attack the personhood of Jesus Christ. Remember what I said? Christianity is Jesus. It's his morals, his message, and his personhood. When you attack the personhood of Jesus, twist the personhood of Jesus, you're committing a Christological heresy. And this is nothing new. This has been going on since the first century of the church. The church has been fighting these battles since the first century. Here are some historical heresies that were taught and challenged by the church. Ebionism and Arianism were two different heresies that were alike in that they taught that Jesus was a human, pretty awesome human, but he wasn't God. So they affirmed the full humanity of Christ, but they denied the full deity of Christ. And the early Christians looked to the words of the writers of the gospels, the apostles that were sent by Jesus. And they're like, you're getting an X on that. That is a Christological heresy. Docetism came along and taught that God had no human nature. So Jesus was God, but he, he just kind of looked sort of human-esque, but he didn't actually have a human nature. The church studied the words of Christ and the apostles, gave him an X. That's a fail. And then Nestorianism came along and they said, oh, we're, we're okay with Jesus having a human nature and we're okay with Jesus having a divine nature, but they're divided. And the church gave them an X, said, no, that's wrong too. There's no division within Christ. His deity and his humanity function together in perfect humanity or perfect unity. He's both 100% God and he's 100% man at the same time. Now, the two words in this passage that draw those out are the words Christ and son. Maybe you think that Christ is Jesus' surname. No, maybe you think that Christ simply means Messiah. It's that, but it's more. It means he's from God. So when Jesus declares himself to be the Christ, he's actually declaring divine status. This is why the Pharisees that heard those words from the mouth of Jesus were like, 
He's a blasphemer. We need to kill him because they understood in the first century that when Jesus said, I am the Christ, that he was declaring deity. Secondly, Jesus is called the son. A lot of people think, oh, that means he's God's little boy. No, no, no. This is a term that describes not only his relationship to the father, father, son, and Holy spirit, but it describes his full humanity. So when we say Jesus is the son of God, we're emphasizing his humanity and his deity, the son of God, not literally God's little boy, but these two terms in biblical theology mean he's God and he's man. But these have been challenged by heretics since the first century. Now think about our culture today. How is it that these people in the modern world have played around with the definition about Jesus? If we were to come up with today's heresy, we could call it todayism, just as a working title. So what is todayism? What, what, what is it that you're hearing about Jesus when you talk to people in a lot of churches or you meet people on the street or people that have left Jesus? And it seems to me that todayism has a view about Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity as well. In his humanity, they're like, well, he's kind of like the hippie man. He's totally chill, man. He wants to hang with you and smoke weed on Friday nights. He wants to party with you. He's passive. He's like an anything goes, uber tolerant kind of Canadian-esque Jesus. That's cool with anything and everything. That's the image that a lot of people have of Jesus. And you know what that leaks through? In their definition of love. They think Christ's love means you have a past to do whatever you want, however you want, because I'm the hippie Jesus and I'm all into radical freedom. With regard to Jesus' deity, it seems to me that many people have this idea that he's, well, he's God, but he's like an unholy God. He has no rules. You can do whatever you want. He's divine, but he's here to kind of like, meet your needs and make your life better. And so you should come to our church because he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And he's going to facilitate your existence because after all, the world wasn't very good until you showed up. And both of these definitions, again, are twisting our biblical doctrines about Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity. And frankly, he's looking a lot more like us all the time. So this is what people do. When you walk away from the Bible, what you end up doing is you end up making God in your own image. You're looking at God in the mirror and you're like, man, he looks an awful lot like me. He holds my values. He affirms me. He loves me. He's out for me. And this is a problem that's been taking place actually since the beginning of time when humanity makes images to replace God They make them out of created things that look an awful lot like them because we're always looking for a God to worship who facilitates radical freedom and self-governance. This text calls us back to a biblical view of Jesus. This is a theological error that we need to be careful to avoid. And again, earlier in the same chapter, the issue is moral. Now it relates to content. So just ask yourself this very simple question. Is my Jesus actually the biblical Jesus? And then we have some practical 
things for us to consider. How do we dodge deceit? How do we put safeguards in place that will keep us from falling into either heresies of content or heresies of practice? Well, check it out in verse 24 and following. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. Let's just pause there for a minute. I'll give you this thought. Suppose I'm thinking to myself, okay, I want to make sure that I'm following the right Jesus. And I want to make sure that I'm living like the right Jesus. So who do I go to, to help me to understand who the right Jesus is? Well, you know what? I heard the church kind of had it going on in the 1800s. So I'm going to scoot back to the 1800s and I'm going to study the church as it existed in the 1800s and great movements and great preachers. And I'm going to pattern my faith after Christians in the 1800s. Or I think to myself, I'm going to go a little further back. I'm going to go back to the medieval era. I mean, I heard the church had it going on in the medieval era. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to study church leaders of the time and their writings. And I'm going to kind of adopt sort of a medieval approach to Christianity. Or I'm going to go even further back to, you know, a century or two after Christ. And oh, those aesthetics, they were cool guys, man, living in the mountains, giving it all up for Jesus and, you know, vows of poverty and the whole thing. I'm just going to study the aesthetics and I'm going to try to, I'm going to pattern my life after those, you know, second century, late first century Christians. What's the problem with all of that? It's not the beginning. The 1800s isn't the beginning of the church. The medieval era is not the beginning of the church. The second century is not the beginning of the church. The beginning of the church is Jesus. The message of Jesus, the morals of Jesus, and the personhood of Jesus. And the text says, how do I dodge deceit? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Who cares about at the end of the day, who cares about what some guy wrote 500 years ago or what I said last week, we need to abide in what we've heard from the beginning. And this is so important because we now are at the end of like 2000 years of church history. We've had denominations rise and fall and umpteen dozen leaders and all kinds of pronouncements and decrees and doctrinal statements and splits. And we're like, who do I follow? What Christians, the right, go back to the beginning and get your nose in this book and find out about the biblical Jesus. Then you too, it says will abide in the son and in the father. Secondly, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. People are trying to deceive you. Think about that. You've been targeted, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach y'all. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you abide in him. Three things to protect ourselves. Three ways to help us to dodge deceit. Here's the first truth. Old truth is generally better truth. The Bible says, let what you heard from the beginning 
abide in you. So this means, and I'm not using this, this word has been corrupted and it's, it's, it's a stretchy word. It can refer to political persuasions, lifestyle choices, all kinds of things. I'm using it in its purest sense. Our default is that we should be conservative in our belief, meaning that we should conserve that which we've heard from the beginning. So if someone's coming to you and they're like, hey, I just found something in the Bible that no one's ever thought of before. You should be suspect of that. You should be careful about that. If it's new, never heard that before, it's automatically suspect. It's happening all the time. One of the primary vehicles of this is the internet. People often spend more time reading the internet, what the internet says about the Bible, than what the Bible says about the Bible. Uh, The internet's a wide open source. Anybody and everybody has an opinion about something or another on the internet. But we need to go back to the Bible and ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually say rather than my favorite keyboard, keyboard theologian? What does the Bible actually say about Jesus? So our default is to conserve, be conservative. And that old truth is generally better. Secondly, remain in the truth. That's what the word abide means. It means to stick with it essentially, or to persevere. It's a powerful word. How do I abide in the truth? By abiding in the word. It just all comes back to the word. I abide in the word. And if I abide in the word, then I abide in the son and in the father. Now think about your week. Saw y'all seven days ago. How's your week been? How many hours did you spend in front of a computer screen? Like I did do a lot of my work on a computer. How many advertisements did you see? on the road, here on the radio. We're constantly being stimulated by messages. Ads in the corner of the screen, emails, texts, television programs, media news, newspapers. Life is just constantly stimulating us with all kinds of messages. And it gets to the point where you ever like, you're sitting around, it's like, I haven't checked my phone for two and a half minutes. I'm feeling kind of antsy. I'm just used to being stimulated. Like, I got I to gotta get on my phone. I got to get on my computer. We're just, we, give me more messages. Give me more stimulation. We're like, I don't like sitting still. I don't like just kind of staring at the stars. I don't even know how to do that. I don't know how to relax. We're a hyper-stimulated culture and society. And then we come into church and we're like, well, give me something new. Give me something stimulating. I mean, throw the images at me. And it's so easy for us in a hyper-stimulated culture to come to church week after week. And after a while, the gospel's not enough. I, I need a miracle. I need something new. I need something fanciful. I need something like out of the box. And this is often the slippery slope toward error. The problem with many churches today, many Christians is that I'm not talking about their theology here. I'm talking about practically what you actually believe. They don't have an authoritative Bible. They don't spend any time in the Bible. They're more likely to listen to some internet 
keyboard theologian tell them what the Bible says than actually reading the Bible for themselves. And this, this, the slippery slope into error is very dangerous and it's hard to recover from. People tend to define truth differently from generation to generation. And it often looks a lot like them. It looks like their culture. I'm not opposed to changing the stuff we're allowed to change, change the musical style. Who cares? Change the name, change the methods, but we never change the message. We never change the message. It's what we heard from the beginning, sticking with it, abiding with it, persevering under it. That's what will give you the win at the end of the day. And then third, hold on to your promise. Verse 25, the promise of eternal life. Now what's interesting here, and I've heard a couple people sort of like throw this at me over the years as if I've never read my Bible or something. I never considered this, but in the text, it basically kind of indicates, well, you don't need any teachers. You don't need any teachers. So, The way people normally use that is they're like, well, I'm going to go into my study and I'm going to study the Bible for myself. And because I got this verse at my disposal, I don't need to be part of a church. I don't need to be under the authority of elders. I can figure it out all by my lonesome. Now, there's evidently a massive and like uber obvious glaring flaw to that. If that's what John meant, we wouldn't have first John. He wouldn't have written it. Why would he be teaching the church? If at the same time, he's like, yeah, you don't need teachers. We wouldn't have any of the Pauline books. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a Bible at all. If it's just like you and Jesus hanging out by yourselves, figuring it out by yourself, nor would the Bible condone ministry gifts. The Bible talks about the church needing apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors to build up the people of God for the work of the ministry. So that would be a contradiction in the Bible. So what's he, what's, what's he talking about here when he talks about not having any teachers? Well, let me, let me frame it up this way. Think of objective and subjective, something that's before you and something that's within you. Objectively, we have a Bible, 66 books, pretty big. It contains the truth of God, everything you need for a successful life. And then subjectively, we have an indwelling Holy Spirit who we're told has anointed us all with his presence. And he is our ultimate safeguard and teacher. So if we have an objective standard, which is the Bible, and we have an indwelling subjective blessing called the Holy Spirit, then in actual fact, if you think about it, I'm not teaching you today at all. I'm just telling you what God has already said. And I believe that's the sense here. Like you don't need anything in addition to the proclaimed word of God in the indwelling presence of the Holy spirit. You don't need some new fangled idea, some new angle, some new perspective to try to figure it out. You have a proclaimed word of God and you have the Holy spirit. And our job then is not to make new things up, but just to tell people what God has already said. So as you prepare to leave here today, let me just say, don't be duped, dude. Don't be duped. Don't let people mess you up. Don't let people take your eyes off of the biblical Jesus, off of the 
way of Jesus recorded for us in the word of God, cling to the word and then rely upon the Holy Spirit as he works collectively among his gathered people to lead us all together as one body into the truth of who Jesus is and how he wants us to live and then empowers us to stay there for his honor and folks for our benefit.